Well, good morning and welcome this morning. Uh, we, we have a standing debate in our household about how long to keep leftovers in the refrigerator. And maybe you have that same debate in your household. My wife, Cindy, says that we shouldn't keep leftovers for longer than a couple of days, whereas I generally think that leftovers are good for at least a week to, to eat afterwards. Um, and then there's Sean, the guy who rents a room from us, and he's been known to keep leftovers in the fridge for several weeks. In fact, we avoid Sean's shelf in our refrigerator at all costs. Um, but leftovers are always a gamble, aren't they? I mean, you would never serve leftovers to dinner guests when they came over. At least you wouldn't admit that you were serving leftovers to dinner guests. But what happens when we give God our leftovers? And I'm not talking about food leftovers. I'm talking about the leftovers of our lives. Jesus once said that the most important command of all is to love God with our whole self, with our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole soul, and our whole strength. What happens when we don't do that? What happens when we hold back major parts of ourselves for other things and give God what's left over? Well, today we reach the end of our Course Corrections summer series, um, and we've spent three months spending each Sunday looking at one minor prophet and the main message of that minor prophet, and then listening for how God might be speaking to us about any course corrections we might need to make in our lives. And today we reach Malachi, the last of the 12 minor prophets, and the final book of the Old Testament, part of the Bible. And in case you missed any of these messages, the entire series is on uh, Glenn Kirk's um, YouTube channel, and I also created an overview. It's an insert in your bulletin today, if you're here with us in person. Um, we'll also make it available on our website, so you can just see an overview of all 12 of the minor prophets and the message that we've shared out of them. But today from Malachi, the last of the minor prophets, we're going to see four consequences that happen when we give God what's left over in our lives. So let's begin with the first verse, Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. It says, A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Malachi was a prophet to God's people in the 5th century before Jesus was born, the last of the writing prophets of the Bible. And Malachi ministered to God's people after they had returned from their exile in Babylon and after they had completed their rebuilding of a new temple to worship in. And so in Malachi's time, God's people had finally settled into a rhythm, a routine. But as they settled... They began to give God the leftovers of their lives. And so God raises up Malachi, the last of the prophets of the Old Testament, to warn them about the consequences of this way of living. Now, let's look at, uh, we're going to see the first consequence from verses 6 through 9. So let's look at that together. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? 
by offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering those to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty. There are six distinct messages in Malachi, and each follows a pattern like we see here, where God reveals something to his people, the people respond with a question, God further clarifies what he's talking about, and then God calls his people to make a course correction to address what he's revealed. So here, God confronts his people for dishonoring him, and they ask, how are we doing that? And so God clarifies by saying that the priests are showing contempt for God's name when they sacrificed diseased animals in the temple. Now, for us today, the whole idea of animal sacrifice seems rather barbaric and primitive. But in ancient Judaism, animal sacrifice was an important part of how the people of God worshiped God. And in fact, before the rise of Christianity, every world religion around the world practiced animal sacrifice as part of their worship. It was only after Jesus came into the world and offered himself as the final sacrifice for sin that he fulfilled the Jewish sacrificial system and made animal sacrifice obsolete. But of course, Malachi lived more than 400 years before Jesus came. And in the Old Testament law, it prescribed that any animals that would be brought into the temple and offered as a sacrifice should be without disease or defect. God's people demonstrated that God was first in their lives by bringing their best to him in offering, in worship. But in Malachi's day, instead of bringing God their best, These priests were bringing the leftovers. They were bringing the one-legged blind bull that no one wanted on their farm. They were bringing sick animals that probably would have died anyway that had no usefulness on a ranch. And so God tells his people that this kind of offering shows contempt for his name, that it was dishonoring God's reputation, which is what his name refers to here. And this is the first consequence of giving God our leftovers. Instead of enhancing God's reputation, when we give God our leftovers, it tarnishes his reputation. See, God calls his people to honor his name, to live the kinds of lives that shine a spotlight on God's goodness and God's character. But we can only do that when we are consistently giving God our whole lives. If we save what's best in us for other things, things like our politics or our career, our bank account or our hobbies, and if we only give God the leftovers in our lives, we end up tarnishing God's reputation instead of enhancing it. 
Christian author Sheldon Van Auken once said that the strongest argument against Christianity is often Christians. And, and I can't help but wonder sometimes if the, the steep decline of church attendance over the last 10 years in our culture has less to do with some shadowy conspiracy against Christianity and more to do with churches that are filled with Christians that are offering God the leftovers of their lives instead of their whole hearts. Malachi warns us that this tarnishes his reputation. To find the next consequence, we'll skip to chapter 2, verse 17, into chapter 3. Look what it says. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or by saying, where is the God of justice? I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. Here, God confronts his people for exhausting him with their words. And they ask, how are we doing that, God? And so God clarifies that when his people say that God does not make a distinction between good people and bad people, but that he treats everyone the same, that this calls God's goodness into question. When God's people look at the injustices in the world around us and roll their eyes and in frustration saying, where is the God of justice? I don't see him anywhere that this calls God's character into question. See, the problem the people of God were making back then was assuming that the bad people were all those people who were out there. They were, they were dividing the world into good people, them, and bad people, everyone else. And what the people of God failed to understand back then, and what we sometimes fail to understand as well, is that the line between good people and bad people is not that simple. The, the Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn once said that the line separating good from evil does not pass through states or countries or classes or even political parties, but the line between good and evil passes through every single human heart. That there are no good people and bad people, there's just people. And all people have good and bad within them. God's people in Malachi's day found it easy to see the bad in those people out there and easy to see the good within themselves, but they were blind to the bad within themselves. And this is because they were holding back their whole hearts from God. They were, they were keeping back those, those hidden parts of their hearts 
that are in the darkness, out of God's reach for him to reveal and to change and to transform. And, and so God responds here by saying, careful what you wish for. You ask for the God of justice. The God of justice is going to come one day. The Lord himself will show up to his temple. And, and notice Malachi doesn't say that the Lord will show up at the pagan temple. It doesn't say he'll show up at the bar or at the white supremacy rally or at the government building. The Lord himself will show up among God's people because judgment starts with the people of God, not the world. And when the God of justice comes, Malachi says, who is going to be able to endure? Who is going to be able to stand? And of course, the answer is that no one could apart from God's grace. The, the, the God of justice will come as a refiner's fire. The, the, the metal refiner would use the heat from fire to get rid of the impurities in a valuable metal like gold or silver. And our lives as the people of God are filled with impurities that only the refining fire of God can burn away and purify. God's justice will come to us as a launderer's soap because our lives as people are stained with our sins and failures, stains that even the strongest detergent can't wash away. Only the goodness of God's justice can remove these stains. And in Malachi's day, God's people thought that they were the good people. They didn't have any impurities or any stains because we're often blind to our own shortcomings and our own sins. Unwilling or unable to see those things in our lives that God still needs to change. And when we hold back our whole hearts from God and just give God our leftovers, our blind spots just get larger and larger. This is the second consequence. Instead of being transformed by God's goodness, we question it. We question his goodness instead of being transformed by it. When we only give parts of our lives to God, we fool ourselves into thinking that everybody else is the problem. We, we are blind to our own complicity in what's wrong in our world. We draw the line between good and bad as between us and them, between our ideas and their ideas, between um, our political party and their political party, between our church and their church. And when God doesn't deal with those people the way we think God should deal with those people, we begin to question God's goodness and say, God doesn't even make a distinction. But what we fail to realize is that God's patience with them is also God's patience with us. That God is giving us time to be changed and transformed by his goodness. See, the mentality we find here in this section of Malachi is a failure in discipleship. Because it's only in our spiritual transformation that we can awaken to our own blind spots and open our hearts more fully to bring those hidden parts that we've kept back and present them to God for him to change. When we withhold our whole hearts from God, instead of being transformed by God's goodness, we question it. 
Now let's look at verses 8 through 10 of chapter 3. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Here God accuses his people of stealing from him. And predictably, the people say, how are we doing that, God? And so God clarifies by saying that they're stealing from him by withholding a portion of their tithes and offerings to him. Now, the Hebrew word translated tithe here, it simply means tenth, a tenth of something. The Old Testament, in the law of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, it commanded all of God's people to tie the tenth of their income to the temple. And back then, God's people would tithe with the crops that they grew or the animals that they raised because that's how their economy functioned. But over time, that was translated to currency and they would bring their currency or their money as a tithe. And that tithe would keep the temple functioning. It would support the priests who worked in the temple and it would provide relief and care for the poor in their community. When God's people didn't tithe, the temple didn't function right. The priests would have to find other ways to support their families, and the poor suffered in their community. The offerings in verse 8 is probably a reference to the temple tithe that the priests would give back to God out of the portion of the tithe that they received. So God's people, both priests and people alike, were failing to give God what rightfully belonged to God. And Malachi said, because of this, your entire community is suffering. Your entire community is under this curse. And so as a course correction, God says to bring the entire amount that he's due, and he invites God's people to test him in this. It's the only part of the Bible God invites people to put him to the test. And God promises to replace this curse with a blessing. And here we find the third consequence. When we give God our leftovers, instead of experiencing abundance, we experience scarcity. Scarcity instead of abundance. Now, Christians debate amongst themselves whether the Old Testament tithing law is still required of Christians in the New Testament. Some people say yes, because tithing predates the Old Testament law, goes all the way back to Genesis and Abraham. Others say no, that the New Testament instead focuses on each person giving what they voluntarily decided in their heart to give. And frankly, some people have so much they should probably give more than a tenth of their income. Good arguments can be made on both sides. But both the Old and New Testaments agree that God's people give God his due through their giving. That if Jesus is your Lord, then Jesus owns all that you have, your possessions, your income, your capacity to earn income. It all belongs to him. He's the owner, and you and I are the stewards or the managers 
of what belongs to him. And one of the primary ways that we express this reality consistently is through the spiritual discipline of giving in our church. See, a mature Christian doesn't give in their church because they really like the worship service as a kind of tip or gratuity because they like the customer service. A mature Christian gives first and foremost as a spiritual practice, as a way of saying, God, you're first in my life. Because what we give ourselves to, we become transformed into what we give to. And this is why God invites us to test us, to test him in this, to try it and see if God doesn't work through our giving. Now, I didn't exactly plan for today's message to be four weeks before the end of Glenkirk's fiscal year, but it happened to work out that way. So um, since our fiscal year ends on October 31st, let me just talk for a minute about where we're at financially here at Glenkirk. Um, this has been a challenging year financially for a lot of people, and that has been reflected in our giving. Um, I know that many of you have faced challenging financial times. Our household has as well. My wife Cindy started her sixth job in 13 months um, last week. And as a church, we are significantly behind in what we projected would come in over this last fiscal year. But fortunately, we've kept our spending down significantly. And so we're not in any type of financial crisis. We're going to end the fiscal year in the black with a reserve. But as we look forward to a new fiscal year that starts on September 1, we're going to need to see giving improve in order to do all that we believe that God has called us to do. And so Malachi reminds us here that when we give God our leftovers, we experience scarcity instead of abundance. One last consequence from chapter 3 of Malachi, verses 13 through 18. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, How have, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. Even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. And the Lord listened and heard a scroll of remembrance was written in his, God's presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On that day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my, pride, my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. Here God accuses his people of speaking arrogantly about him. And once more, the people say, how are we doing that, God? And so God point, responds by pointing out that his people were saying that it was worthless to serve God because they weren't getting any tangible benefit out of their service. God's people in Malachi's generation expected to get something, to get a gain from their service of God. 
Now this time, instead of God giving the people of course correction, the people of God take initiative and respond before God can even speak. Those who feared the Lord, those who were in a close relationship with God, talk among themselves. They end up writing a scroll of remembrance. And we don't know anything about what was on this scroll, but we know that it pleased God. And God responds by assuring this group that they are his treasured possession. But here we find the fourth and final consequence of giving God our leftovers. When we give God our leftovers, instead of serving God for his sake, we look to get something from our service. We look to gain something from our service. Fourteen years ago, I went through um, over a year of unemployment. And during that time, when I was looking for a, a new job, I started volunteering twice a week at a local juvenile detention center at a high-security detention center in Ontario that's since closed. And before you get too impressed, I need to confess to you that my motives in doing that were not pure at all. You see, I had heard a rumor that this facility was considering hiring a full-time chaplain, and I thought I would have a better chance of getting that job if I was already volunteering there. And so I signed up. I was serving to get something. But as I led Bible study each week with these incarcerated young men and young women, all of them minors, many of them facing long prison sentences for violent crimes, God began to really convict me about my motives and about my heart. God began to change my heart. I finally let go of my desire to get that chaplain job, that job that never got funded and never transpired, and I began to really focus on the people who were there, who I was ministering to. I began to serve God for his sake rather than giving leftovers, expecting to get something out of it. Serving God to get something back is a continual temptation for us as people. But as followers of Jesus, we're called to serve God for his sake. And this brings us to the end of our course corrections series. And one of the reasons I believe the Spirit of God led us to the Minor Prophets this summer is because I think today's church has forgotten some of the themes and teachings we find in these 12 books of the Bible. You see, many Christians only look at the parts of the prophets that talk about the coming of Jesus, and there are a lot of those. But our Reformed theological tradition reminds us that the entire Old Testament is God's word to us, not just the prophecies about Jesus. It reminds us that there is only one people of God in the Bible and that God's word to Israel in the Old Testament is also God's word to the church today. We face the same issues and need many of the same course corrections that God's people back then needed. And so I think we needed the Minor Prophets this summer to get us ready for what's next here at Glenkirk in the months ahead. Because we need the strength to resist the temptations of the idols that our culture tempts us with, just like they did. We need the resolve to soften our hearts towards the most vulnerable around us. 
just like they did. We need the courage to live lives of kindness, humility, and justice as Micah 6.8 calls us to. We need to let our imagination expand to have a vision of God's love like we read in the book of Jonah. We need the perseverance to keep doing what God has called us to do like they did in Haggai's generation. And we need to continually renew our commitment to give God our whole hearts and not just our leftovers. God is loving and patient with his people in every generation, including ours. So let us hear the word of the Lord and be faithful in the days ahead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these 12 minor prophets and thank you for the book of Malachi as we look at it today. Lord, it is our heart's desire that we hold back nothing from you that you would capture our whole heart, all of our strength, all of our mind, all of our soul, that we would be fully submitted to you and as a consequence, Lord, that we would love people well. And so God, as we prepare our hearts to receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper today, God, renew our commitment through your grace to give you our all. God, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.